Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to continue in our series, Love Walked Among Us, with a a very poignant and familiar narrative. Uh, As you're looking in your Bibles uh, for that passage, the first 30 verses, let me just kind of get us warmed up to why we're in this discussion. John uh, said in 1 John 4, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We have right there, sort of in that First John 4 passage, the essence of, of this series, Love Walked Among Us, that the love of God poured out in his people uh, that is revealed to the world through us is kind of the both and function of this love of God. And the narrative stops that we've taken over the last couple of months have been our attempt to paint a picture with selected scriptures of what that love of God looks like through the person of Jesus, okay? And we have seen so far in the life of Christ that the love of Christ is, is the kind of love that actually sees people, looks people in the eye, and, and uh, acts towards them. It is a compassionate love. It's, it's the kind of love that riles itself for righteousness' sake, um, It flows only and completely through dependence on God, his will, and his timing. And it is the kind of love that has room for intrusion. It is is not like the world's love. It is a totally different definition altogether. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you. I am a sucker for love. Um, And in old age, I'm discovering this more and more. I can't watch a narrative on TV. I can't watch a movie, can't hear a song. If it leans into this idea of brotherly love or the idea of paternal love or any kind of salvific themes at all, I cry. I cry at everything. It could be a commercial and I'll cry. And and I know this is a problem because if I'm watching TV with my son, he knows me so well, he just looks at me because it's coming. Which is sad. Now, that's a little bit too much transparency for you. But let me be judgmental if you're more, you're more enjoying that. I, I think you're a sucker for love. I'm not alone in this. And uh, some of you, that comes as no surprise. You're one of those weepers too. And you've discovered it in old age. Uh, but I think uh, perhaps the best way for those of you who are in denial to see this, that you're a sucker for love, is your desire for it more than your recognition of it. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. Every man, woman, and child who's ever been born has been born with a deep, deep desire for love. That's just true. Let me kind of split the scriptures and like focus for a second. Um, The scriptures are plain when it talks about the condition of us. David uh, talked about it in Psalm 51. God, I was born in iniquity. He's stating a statement not just true for him, but of all mankind. Born. We're born sinners. Born broken. Born blind. Born at war with God. That's our condition. Paul describes it this way in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man. The first man, that's Adam. And because of that, death spread to all men because all have sinned. Can I get it? Amen. That's our condition. Born spiritually dead, unresponsive to God, we are born in sin. Now those two passages, if I just limit our discussion to those two, they present for us something that we're all born with. We're born with sin. But what they do not do is tell us or describe to us the absence of something that we're born with. And the absence of something is the love of God. 
Sin is the expression, like born in, in war, born in iniquity, born warring and upset and selfish. I mean, that's true, and the scriptures that I read to you clearly describe what we come with, but it doesn't necessarily, at least in those passages, describe what we don't come with, and, and that is a clear depiction of the fact that there is this missing thing in us, the absence of his love, the absence of relationship. It's implied, but clearly in our understanding of the sinful heart, we don't ever talk about the absence much. We talk about the presence of sin. Now, let me ask you a question, just teasing this up, and I think I have my answer. My assumption is we'll agree. Which is worse? Is, is it the self-inflicted harm from sin? If, is it our decisions in sin to hurt ourselves and other people? Is, is it the anger, the lust, the stealing, the pride, the, all the stuff? Is that worse, or is it... Is it worse to have this deep, deep, deep longing for God that is never satisfied? What's worse? Can I suggest to you that one's the cause and one's the effect? Can I, can I suggest to you that the scriptures are clear that the result of sin comes from an absence of God? That the absence, this desire to be loved and known by our creator, that's what causes us to run off and fill the void some other way and all those other ways are sin? That, that's important for us to get our heads around. It's kind of like a parent. Every once in a while you see a news uh, uh, story of a parent who loses a child and the franticness, like the lostness of where is the child? Somebody help me find the child. That angst is kind of a, a great little visual of the human heart as it chases God in all things that he made without finding it. Frantic. I'm just frantic. I, I know something's missing. I, I got to try. And so it, it looks like that. I think that's way more painful. I think it is the impetus behind all sin. And sin is simply described as a way that man tries to fill the void that we feel that we were born with without God. That is sin. Solomon said it this way, that God has set eternity on the human heart. He shaped us for that. St. Augustine, a theologian, said it this way, you, may, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart will, is restless until it rests in you. That seems to be reasonable. It reflects my experience. Jesus said this, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. In the Greek, inmost being is just simply a phrase for hollow place, empty place. We're all born with an empty thing. This created with the shape of God without God means there's this vacuum and we go after stuff to fill it. And therein lies our misery. All those things hurt us. You've known that. So let me just make certain we don't miss this. The love of God isn't a good feeling. It's his nature. It's his character. And let me suggest to you as well that um, it's the watermark on every human heart. Do you know, I hope you know what a watermark is. If you pick up like a, like a, a, a paper company, uh, their stationery, whatever, you might see uh, this particular ghostly image in the back that represents. I, I, looked at, I took the, the, the opportunity to look up the definition. Tell me this doesn't preach. Definition of watermark. A faint design made during manufacturing that is visible when held against the light that identifies its maker. It's like they were reading the Bible. <laughs> you have a watermark. It's the watermark of God. 
And every time you hold it against truth, hold it against the, the world, it just reflects on you. You were made for something else. You are, and I were made to want the love of God, to thrive in the love of God and reflect the, the love of God. But it's kind of like this uh, story you hear of times when men are stranded at sea, they choose to drink the seawater only to have it kill them. That, that's what it's like to have this longing that you feel the wrong way. Everyone dies from the wrong way. So that's the story of our life, it's the story of my life, and it's the story of the woman that we read about in John 4 this morning. And it all is that true until she meets the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So most of us have heard this story before, and ultimately it's, it's a story of the loving pursuit of God for the thirsty heart of man. What's great about this passage is it's super simple. There is just two players in this story. It's this woman and it's Jesus and it's their conversation. Okay, what's interesting too about this conversation, it happens to be the longest recorded narrative uh, in the Gospels. More so than Jesus with disciples, it's, it's simply a point I think that John's trying to make here. Like what's going on here is the essence of the good news. It is the mission of Jesus in a story form. It's kind of like your yearbook. Read it, you're the woman. Read it and you'll see Jesus offering for all those other things. And I think that's why John gives it so much airplay in, in this first 30 verses. Now, um, the other thing I think is interesting about this is that it happens to be the very first non-Jewish encounter that Jesus has in the Gospels. So that means something, how, how this good news is for sinners, right? All sinners of all ilk. So let, let's do this. Let, let's just go through it sequentially and obviously. Uh, first nine verses, Let's see how they meet. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? I want you to picture the scene, okay? Uh, most writers would suggest that when journeys were taken, they were taken at the earliest part of the day. So let's just say uh, the text tells us it was noon. It was the sixth hour. So let's say they've been walking five to six hours, okay? Early day. Now, you can, you can understand sweaty brow, worn out, dirty, walking. Jesus is truly weary, as, as the text says, that John tells us here. And as they're passing through uh, Samaria... They stop at this place called Sychar, and it's where the patriarch, 2,000 years before, Jacob had built this well. And all of, all of these Samaritans, all these people had been uh, drawing from that well for, for many, 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 many millenniums. So, and this woman comes out to this well, and Jesus looks at her. Now, none of this, none of this strikes us as unusual, but I'm going to prove to you that I think it is. He looks at her, and he asks her, for a drink. Here's some background to show you how extremely um, unusual it is. First of all, the Jews, and it kind of shows us that in verse 9, the Jews despise the Samaritans. They have no dealings with the Samaritans, verse 9 says. And here's why. Samaritans to a Jew were half-breeds and heretics. 
See, here's the, here's the, the background to this. Samaritans come from intermarriage between the Assyrians and other Gentiles when the Assyrians took over Israel in 722 B.C., and so they just came in and formed this hodgepodge of religion and lifestyle, okay? So pagan ways and pagan people with pagan beliefs intermarry with Jews, and so out it comes. Uh, this kind of mix of the beliefs of some of what the scriptures said. They only limited their understanding or their, at least their perspective, the first five books of the Old Testament and kind of adopted other things, and what they adopted was idolatry. So you could just imagine the absurdity of this expression. That's the Samaritans. And that was the influence of this intermarriage. They also didn't recognize the temple in Jerusalem, so they built their own temple in Mount Gerizim, which happened to be right there, just to the south of the well, Jacob's well. So Jesus is having this conversation with this woman, and in the shadow background is the, te- is the, the mountain that represents the temple of another version, okay? And that's the, that's the particular story. If you, in your mind, picture extreme racism, I think you're pretty close to the feelings Jews had against the Samaritans. And in our culture, the discussion about racism is on every day, and you see pictures of it every day. So we should be very, very sensitive to like, oh man, this is how they, this is how they felt about these people. This is how these people were treated. And so that's, what, that's what's going on. Very unusual, first of all, that Jesus the Jew sitting at the well in Samaria is talking to a Samaritan woman. You can see that, right? So with that in mind, I want you to notice verse 4. It, you just read over it, but I think it's poignant. Verse 4 just simply says, and he had to pass through Samaria. I don't think that's true. I think he could have gone around Samaria like every self-respecting Jew has always done. Just hang a right at the Jordan River, go north, you're in Galilee. You don't have to go through Samaria. But I think the essence of this verse was a divine appointment that God had given Jesus. You're going to meet this woman. This woman's going to be changed. Him having to was all about mission. All about mission. So, isn't that our story too? You and I weren't looking for Jesus. Nobody's looking for Jesus. Nobody sets themselves on looking for the divine, the Savior. Nobody does that. In our broken, sinful hearts, all we have is the train wreck of that lostness. It's Jesus, in his goodwill and good time, reaches us, doesn't he? It's like we all have our own little well somewhere, and we all run into the Savior somewhere. And he looks us in the heart and he confronts the issues of our idolatry and he woos us to faith and salvation. That is the story of every believer. You weren't looking for him, he was looking for you. There's something else I want you to notice in this narrative. It's when the woman came to the well. It says she came at noon. I just want you to know this is really weird. She came at noon and she came alone. It's it's no different in my mind than how we experience Arizona. If you want to get something done when it's warm, you get up at the crack of dawn or just before, and you go out after the sunset, right? And there's a cool breeze in the evening, and it's sort of cool in the morning, and you can enjoy it. And so in that culture, the Samaritan women, they would go in mass, kind of a social thing, and they would go when it was logical. Let's do this heavy lifting when it's cooler. So there's a reason why this woman is alone and at high noon. You know what it is. She's ostracized. She's alone because she is the lowest of the low there. She has no buddy. She has no 
uh, friends, in essence. Um, so she goes, probably not because they demanded of her, probably because it's the easiest way to navigate her story. Because she's got a story. And I'd rather not go to the well in the morning with all the women and at night with all the women and have them know what kind of a woman I am. I'd rather just be alone. Can you relate to that? Some people choose to keep their distance from the brothers and sisters because they're afraid of their story. Nevertheless, that's what this woman is dealing with. So she comes to the well as an outsider. Another unusual thing about this moment is Jesus talking to her. Now that doesn't ring a bell with us, but men, Jewish men, talking to women, period, didn't happen. In fact, there was a sect of Pharisees called the Bruised and Bleeding Pharisee. And the reason why they got that name is whenever they encountered just seeing a woman, they would cover their eyes and run into things. <laughs> so, so you just know how passionately they held this idea of let's keep our distance from, from women. Jesus sits down and engages her right away. Another thing that's not in the text, but I'm okay if it's implied or if it happened, it wasn't written. And that is that Jesus actually asked for a drink. Somewhere in this, there was going to be a cup that belonged to the Samaritan woman that Jesus was going to drink from. Either he planned to or he did. Either way, if you drink from a Samaritan cup, you defile yourself. This is, a, this is spiritual jeopardy in a Jew's mind. All of it's scandalous. Like you just don't do any of this. You don't go to Samaria, you don't talk to a woman, you don't talk to that kind of woman, and you don't drink from her cup. You don't do any of it. And Jesus did all of it. Nothing in this story is normal, but I'll tell you this, it screams the love of God. So I want you to keep that in your mind. I want you to now look, let, let's set the conversation form here in verses 10 through 15. Let's see what Jesus offers her. Jesus answered her, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Uma said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and we and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here in the midst of this uh, surprised moment, Jesus suddenly turns the conversation to spiritual things. If you've ever had a conversation with someone who is on the outside of the kingdom of God and you're the one who has to say, hey, let's lean into this discussion about Jesus. You know how creepy this thing is feeling for, for her at this moment. The preferred um, mode of operandi for those who don't Christ is to say, let's just not go there. Let's not have this discussion. Don't take it to the spiritual place. Jesus does. He drives it right there. Let me just suggest to us to stop for a second. I think this is really important. When I was thinking through this passage, I wanted to make certain that we didn't leave here thinking that this was a story about her only. Did it happen? Is it true? Yes. The, the things that Jesus offers are for you. See, I, I, know, I know Tyler said it in communion, but every time we gather, there are followers of Christ 
And there are investigators of Christ. And there are people on the outside thinking he's a joke. And I'm going to suggest to you, if you yet determine what you think about Jesus, then this story really is Jesus speaking to you. He's offering something to you. To those who are broken. To those who are tired. To those who have, like this woman, a thousand attempts at joy with no conclusion, no happiness whatsoever. This is Jesus offering. He's saying something to us. Jesus declares himself to this woman and to everyone in this room that he is the gift and the giver of life. That's a pretty big statement. That's what he says, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. He offers it all. Some have suggested uh, that this woman wouldn't have understand wouldn't have understood Jesus and how he's referring to spiritual things because living water can be translated flowing water. So some have said, well, she probably just thought that Jesus was offering a more fresher version of what's in her bucket. Like that's all it is, just fresher water. But I'm gonna suggest to you, I I think she knew clearly what was going on here. Uh, Any uh, normal Samaritan even would know that God was called the fountain of living waters from Jewish culture, they would know that. And I would suggest to you the strongest indication that she knew was her response to Jesus. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? Here's a paraphrase. Who do you think you are? She knew. She she knew Jesus wasn't just offering her a fresher version of actual H2O in her bucket. She knew. He said something grand, some offering. And she says, who do you think you are? So, I think it was clear. So Jesus goes back to his offering again and describes it to her in verse 13 and 14, like this. Everyone who drinks of this water is gonna be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Complete, permanent, ultimate satisfaction. Now that sells, yes? If someone told you complete, permanent, ultimate satisfaction, that ultimately is the driving force behind all that we do. I want that. I need that. And Jesus offers it to her in himself. I would suggest that uh, unlike every other pursuit in our life, Jesus is suggesting that he will ultimately satisfy. And I know this if I just simply asked you, have you discovered this? If you were honest, you would say, of course. Because here's what I have. I have a PhD in chasing the wrong thing. I have chased and I've chased and I've chased. I've gone after things and all of them scream. All of them say this, come here for life. Come here and find joy. All of them say the same thing. And they all have another thing in common. They don't measure up. None of them do. It never works. And I think, I think this is true. Every sadness and disappointment in our lives comes from a letdown of expecting life from dead things. That's why it's so defeating. Like, I thought it could give me life, and it doesn't. Jesus knows that. And I'm looking at you, and you know that. I think a lot of you know that. And, and I think the woman does as well, as we'll see in just a minute. By the way, just, just one other point I want to make. I, I read this this week, and I think, it's, I think it's true. It rings true. What Jesus is not saying about this 
this living water, this ultimate satisfaction. He is not saying that, that if you come to Jesus that you'll never experience ever a longing. That you'll never have a thirst. That you'll never have spiritual hunger. Like, come to Jesus, done deal. If you've walked with Christ any length of time at all, you could say with all the rest of the saints in the world, like, sometimes I'm dry. Right? Sometimes, uh, sometimes I don't perceive the kingdom like I should. Sometimes I'd rather do other things. Sometimes I'm spiritually parched. Sometimes I don't want to worship. Sometimes I don't want to serve. Sometimes I just am totally broken that way. Have you not experienced that even in your converted life? Yeah, you have, okay? It sort of fits our discussion when we talked about God's silent and this is us series. We feel that. Sometimes he feels far away. I think what Jesus is saying here is that God gives us a supply that we never have to go thirsty again. That's the truth. He never leaves us, right? He never forsakes us. He's always working in us, working for us. Jeremiah 29 said, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your hearts, sort of you get what you search for. Now, one more thing I want you to see about this offer and that in verse 14, he calls it a welling up eternal life. I, I think this was fascinating. The phrase welling up is the same phrase of a word used in Acts chapter 3. And you know this story too. It's after the church was formed, Pentecost happened, the, the all great things in Jerusalem were going on. Peter and John are all on their way to the temple to, uh, to worship. And there's a man, a crippled man, that is brought out there all the time in front of the gates to beg for alms. And he's there doing what he does every day, trying to survive. And they, he, this man looks at Peter and says, hey, can you give me something? And Peter goes, I don't, I don't have any money, but what I have I give to you, rise and walk. You remember that? The passage says that the man rose up, dancing, leaping, praising God. The word leaping is welling up. So what I'm trying to tell you is there's a version of eternal life that isn't just about, oh, tomorrow I get heaven. Tomorrow I go be with God. It's about joy today. There's a welling upness of life that is, oh, this pursuit, this angst in my heart, this desire for other things, it comes to an end. Like there's a joy when you know it's settled. And that's the joy of eternal life that I think is being mentioned here by, by John. It is the opposite of the stagnant life that was represented by this water being pulled out of this old well. It's, it's brand new. It's peace, it's purpose, it's security, it's happiness. And before we move on, let, let me just make certain that we really warm up to the method of Jesus in this. We have always looked at Jesus in this series and how he loved, but I hope you're noticing the loving way that he reached out to her. He noticed her. He looked her in the eye. He listened to her. He never put her down. He didn't write her off. I mean, that's the expression of God's love. She wasn't just a, a box to check. She was a person to love. And so Jesus does that over and over and over again. Okay, let's see how Jesus exposes her sin. This is going to be the uncomfortable part, so brace yourself. Verse 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
Does this seem insensitive to you? Like how many of you are sitting down having a chat with a guy at work and talking and trying to lean the conversation to spiritual things and you go, and let me just tell you something. You're a loser. <laughs> Sin all over your life. I know that's not how Jesus said it, but that's how it would feel to do it, wouldn't it? Just like, oh, I'm going for the kill here. It's okay that it feels that way to us, but let me just suggest to you that, and by the way, I think she took it that way. She's clearly uncomfortable. He says, go call your husband. She gives a half-truth back. I have no husband. And she's trying to hide this thing, but she doesn't know that Jesus knows all of it. And so he just says it. You're right. You don't have a husband. You got a bunch of dudes. Can I suggest to you that that wasn't harsh, that it was love? Because ultimately what Jesus was offering her, a complete, ultimate, satisfying, permanent, joyful life was hindered by her unwillingness to see and admit her need. Which, to be honest, is the logjam for anybody who's looking for joy and doesn't want to admit that they need something that only Jesus can provide. If you think somehow that your, your good deeds, your righteous efforts, your comparison to other people is good enough to merit some affection, some attention from God, then you will never perceive yourself in need of a Savior who can radically do transplant on your heart. It'll never happen. Jesus' words couldn't be more loving because if he didn't say these things, she could never know joy. She would never know this ultimate satisfaction. We say it all the time that the good news only comes one way. It's through realizing the bad news. And I, I know, humanly speaking, we'd rather just skip the bad news. But you can't skip the bad news or there is no good news. The bad news is that I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Separated from God and the life that God offers because of my sinful heart. Without the conviction of sin, there is no offering of life. So Jesus does what I think is the most loving thing he could do, kind of like a doctor with a knife. Nobody likes the idea or the concept of surgery. We only like the outcome. And that's true. Jesus, you, you cut. You cut deep. You cut to the core of the issue. When it's done, I'll be healed. Show me what I need. The other thing that I want you to notice um, that this exposure does is it puts a spotlight on all her failed attempts to find joy without God, doesn't it? You're right, you have no husband because you've had this guy and you've had this guy and you've had this guy and this guy and this guy. You've tried a thousand ways to get love, to find acceptance, to be whole. You, you're doing exactly what you can do without help. She does what we do, what we've done, a thousand other things. No different than anybody who's chased after mirage only to drink the sand. Look good. So, by the way, I want you to also realize that, that her looking for life and love isn't the problem. I mean, I think I told you in the beginning, I think she's wired for that. She's made for that. But looking for it endlessly in all the wrong places is crushing her, and Jesus knows it. So the most loving thing to do to the thing that's crushing her is to call it out. Aren't you tired? Aren't you worn out? Aren't you sick? 
I mean, every choice you make, every step you make away from the plan of God and the answer of God only buries you deeper in shame and guilt. Aren't you tired of that? So he calls it out. Look how she responds. Verse 19. Woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say in, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, some think this was her attempt to bob and weave the conversation, like this is really uncomfortable, so let's change it to church. Let's get into a discussion about worship. Uh, but I don't believe that to be true. Um, I think in that culture, it was rightly understood that prophets could see things. Prophets would know things. I think when Jesus said, you've had five, immediately she goes, uh-oh, I'm dealing with something different here. And I think she was cut to the quick. I think immediately, you caught me, I'm convicted, I'm convicted. And the first thing she thinks about to solve the problem of her sin was, how do I fix it? Where do I go to church? Where do I worship? Jews think in Jerusalem, we're at Mount Gerizim, and where do I go to take my blood sacrifice? Where do I serve? Where do I make it right with God? And Jesus blows that up too. And he says in verse 21, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, the, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the, that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus says, woman, your problem isn't solved by choosing the right mountain to offer a sacrifice. You don't understand. By the way, Samaritans, you're, you're confused about the narrative of God because you don't even use the whole narrative of God. You're kind of picking and choosing and got idol worship. It's all confusing. But fundamentally, what Jesus is referring to is that salvation doesn't come by going to a, the right mountain. Salvation comes by going to the right Savior. You need a rescuer. You need help. So let me just kind of turn it on us. If it's true, what I think God does every week by bringing people who are trying to figure this thing out, then let me just tell you the same thing. You can't fix it. You can't come to church enough. You cannot pray enough. You can't go to counseling, get marriage counseling, start going to classes, reading book, informing your mind so that suddenly the problem is gone. You need a savior. You need somebody to totally transplant the heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh, right? That's what we believe. Jesus says the Father is seeking people who worship him in truth, which is interesting, um, just very simply put, because we could go into this much deeper, but what Jesus is referring to is things that are true about God, things that God has revealed about himself, pretty clear, in truth. In a culture that's lost its mind, that there is no truth except what you decide is for you, that relativism is, is a joke and it'll lead you to hell. You need to understand there is an absolute truth and it's how God has revealed himself. Jesus simply says, you don't understand God is seeking, God is searching, God is finding people who will line up under how God has revealed himself in truth. Worship the true God. Don't make one up. Don't make one up that fits in your world and makes you comfortable. Live with this truth and also in spirit. In other words, he wants your heart. He wants all of you. There is a big difference between performance 
because I know something versus worship because I love someone. There's a big difference. And all he's saying is when you believe how God has revealed himself, there will be an affection. In fact, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with the heart, soul, mind, and code for everything you got. Give him all that you have, spirit and truth. Let's finish the story. Notice the effects of this confrontation. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, why do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. I believe right here in verse 26, she was changed. I believe right here, like all of us, when Jesus reveals himself to our hearts, we believe, right? It's how it works. We see him as Savior and Messiah. Messiah, we understand he exchanged my sin for his righteousness. He died my death and he rose again to give me life. I see him because he's revealed himself to me and I am changed, I'm saved. That's how it works. He speaks to your heart and he, he convicts you. And he convicts you that he's the only way. And I think at that moment, verse 26, she looked at him and goes, oh, you're the joy I've been looking for. You're the one who can deal with my, my tragedy. You're the one who can deal with my reputation. You're the one who can just treat me as if my sins didn't exist. You're the one. If you want proof, just watch how she responds. She leaves her stuff and she immediately witnesses of Christ. And her witness is interesting, verse 29, and I'm gonna paraphrase it. She runs into town to the people she was ostracized from and what she says is, come see the man who sees me. Which is, I think, a confession of, of deity, to be honest with you. Because the text kind of says, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. I don't think that's true either. He didn't sit down for hours and go, and on Wednesday and way back you did this. He didn't do that. But what he did in just revealing what she was at that moment revealed to her that he knew there wasn't anything he didn't know. He rec she recognized that moment. He was divine. And she was changed right there. And she runs into town and tells everybody. Just like all of us, when God peels back the layers of our heart, just like the living water he offers anybody else in here who doesn't yet know what they think of Christ, he offers us Life, if we will but see him and realize our need and trust him as Savior. Okay, I think this story is my story. I think it's your story, isn't it? Now, we have different things on our list. Like if Jesus sat down with you and said, it's true, but let me tell you the rest of the story. And he laid out for you all of the secrets. I think it's our story, just like this woman where sin has excluded us, lied to us, blinded us, and broken our hearts. And that's just what sin can do. God's love seeks us. It offers life to us. It lovingly exposes us. And it reveals himself to us. And we are saved. In Paul's writings to the church in Ephesus, there is a verse, I'm going to paraphrase, because I'll bet this would be her testimony. But because of his great love for me, God, who is rich in mercy, made me alive with Christ, even when I was dead in sin. That is, 
that is the offering of grace and goodness through Christ. It is the testimony of people who have joy unspeakable and full of glory. He radically did that for us. Amen? Amen. Let's thank God for his love. Lord God, we do uh, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the love of God that's been poured out on our lives, how you took stubborn, warring, dead hearts and transferred them to life and living and joy. God, we see ourselves in this story. We, we see the need of the world in this story. God, I pray that your people would walk around with just the joy of, of, their, of your salvation. And for anybody else who might be here who has yet to determine what they feel about Christ, I pray that the exposure of the gospel would have them meet the Messiah. I pray in Christ's name, amen.